0: to a brand new episode of the jams tea podcast we spit the jams and spill the tea and we're coming at you with a new episode where we talk about the goings-on in the world of music this week we have just released two new reviews on the channel so please go check those out they are for the new album from the go team i i don't really know how to classify them they're They're a fun little pop group, but they're they're difficult to classify. We're also going to be talking about the new album from Young Fathers. I don't know how to classify them either, but we're talking about Heavy Heavy. So go and check out that video if
1: you haven't. Today, it is Valentine's Day as this video releases as well. And so the topic of our main discussion today in this now episode is going to be our favorite love songs. So stick around for that. We have some very, let's just say, podcore picks. Nothing that will surprise anyone who even remotely knows us or has watched the show for any amount of time. But still, some of the greatest love songs that we think are non-obvious. I didn't of course. pick a Tom Waits song. You didn't pick a Tom Waits song. And look, I, I, applaud, I applaud the restraint. But before we get to that, as we typically do in our NOW episodes, we're going to talk about what's new in the world of music, new releases, new singles, and news in general. And let's start with the biggest music news of the week, of course. The Grammys happened in the time since we last did one of these NOW episodes as well. Big Music's biggest night, of course. Uh, the, (gasps) the, The stirrer and source of discourse abound. Overall, as far as the Grammys go, this was far from the worst Grammys. In fact, I'd say that on a Grammy, again, again, we're we're talking Grammy standard here. I thought this was a pretty good Grammys in terms of like overall wins and nominees, that sort of stuff. Lots, of course, to criticize and poke at and prod at. But, uh, and of course, you know, say what you will about the biggest shock of the night, I suppose, which was Bonnie Raitt uh, winning song of the year. You know, of course, the legendary country artist who probably no one who typically watches the Grammys or talks about them on social media is all that familiar with. But, of course, a living legend of country music uh, that I absolutely had to Google as soon as (laughs) it happened. Uh, But still, you know, that's an awesome sort of uh, it's cool to have a sort of Lifetime Achievement Award in that slot. I think because... I am, pro, generally speaking, pro-chaos when it comes to the Grammys, and this felt like very a, very much a chaotic good choice. And I was okay with it because of Lizzo, actually. Lizzo's About Damn Time, which anyone who remembers our year-end list will remember was one of my favorite songs of 2022 in general, one record of the year which was a great and well-deserved uh, win because, of course, as anyone who is nerdy about the Grammys will tell you, the difference between Song of the Year and Record of the Year is that Song of the Year is about songwriting and Record of the Year is about production. And the About Damn Time is an immaculately produced pop song. It kicks, it pops, it sounds amazing. And Lizzo's performance on that song is absolutely incredible. So, yeah, between those two huge wins, very little to complain about from me. Um, It was... Not exactly an upset, but I think maybe somewhat of, uh, um, no, I, I guess it's not fair to say that anyone, it's not fair for anyone to be surprised that Harry Styles won album of the year for his limp Harry's house album. Yeah. It's not, no one can claim to be surprised because that album was huge. Harry Styles is huge. He's going through a huge moment. He's been a gift to headline writers and the media world for the entire cycle of this album. And, you know, the other projects that he's done. And that means like Harry Styles is a discourse machine for better or worse. And whether you love him or you hate him, you know, I think as it was, was a pretty good pop song. It was yeah. It's pretty awesome that that song was as big as it was uh, because essentially it is just an indie rock song or it is just wearing the aesthetics of 2000s indie rock pretty bluntly. But yeah, I think a lot of people were pulling for Beyonce to take uh, album of the year. And I certainly I was as well. I think it was the best album amongst the nominees by far, actually. Pretty, pretty handily
0: too. I mean, I think that a lot of people were also kind of expecting them to kind of kowtow to it just because it's generally accepted that uh, she should have won the year uh, Lemonade was nominated, but didn't. And everyone was kind of like, hmm. So they sort of thought that they would be making up for lost time, but I guess not.
1: Well, it's funny because, you know, Beyonce's fans, being as vocal as they are, and look, all love to them, were completely up in arms about this loss. And again, I understand, I understand how it looks, you know, uh, successful, you know, biggest, potentially have, has an argument for being the biggest artist in the world, happens to be a black woman, lost the album of the year, uh, Grammy for her most well received and, and beloved album, although I guess you could debate that, to, you know, a white guy who likes to you know queer bait or whatever i'm not going to get into it you know i don't actually have any animosity towards harry styles i kind of just i kind of could do with a year where where he's not in the news where i could just kind of forget he exists for a while and then if he came back and say 2025 i would probably be like oh awesome he's back I, i wish he would go away for a little while and come
0: back weirder yeah that would be that would be advantageous for everybody
1: I feel like we've been waiting, you know, he's made three albums now. I feel like each album has been like, okay, cool. And I feel like he's going to really sort of push into his idiosyncrasies with the next one. And he kind of just hasn't done that. He's kind of just stayed in the same spot, which is a little bit um, frustrating, but maybe, you know, I feel like Harry Styles, you know, he's maybe a little bit too young to really fully, you know, do that. I feel like as he gets older, maybe he'll start to be a little bit weirder. Who knows? Aside from that though, yeah, it was funny because Beyonce fans were so up in arms, and I can get it for her not winning album of the year, even though this was the same Grammys where she essentially broke a record um, for the most Grammy wins for a single solo artist ever. I think. I think it was th- she hit her 32nd, 32nd Grammy, I believe, this Ooh. year, which is kind of amazing. Yeah, uh, and I guess, you know, we can call ourselves queer music commentators as well so we are somewhat i suppose entitled to comment on the fact that kim petrus became the first transgender woman to win a grammy since wendy carlos and that you know all all that comes with that as well you know uh, you know i actually think unholy is like it's not a great it's not a very good song i don't think it's the worst thing in the world like some people i've you know i'm friends with it's not as bad as anything on
0: slut pop
1: no for sure but i do think that you know, everything about Kim Petrus winning this, it just made my eyes roll. Like the whole, just everything about her performance at the Grammys as well was just, she, it's so funny. Like the first Grammy in how you know, like 50 years or however longer to go to a trans person goes to a woman who can't sing. <laughs> she cannot carry a tune at all no it's embarrassing no. watching especially when watching her up there with sam smith who is obviously like classically vocally trained and has pipes you know what <laughs> to have her be there kind of backing them up and just completely sounding like a cat with someone stood on its tail like come on maybe the grammy that we are most obligated to talk about because it most aligns with I guess us. It's the Grammy for best alternative music album. Let me just re- remind you all of the nominees in this category. So we had arcade fires. We, eh. we had big thieves dragging you were mountain. I believe in you. My album of the year last year. Thumbs up. We had Björk's Fossora, big thumbs up for Björk getting yet another Grammy nomination. Spoiler alert. It's That's like it. the dozenth one that she has not won. Uh, we had man. We had wet legs, self-titled album and we had year, year, years. Call it down now
0: <laughs> did wet leg win wet, wet leg, leg won, won of course wet leg, ah. won. wet
1: leg has been huge particularly Man. in the demographic of like middle-aged you know young boomer guys who like to pretend that they're really really and, hip and i don't know a single fucking person who likes them not one <laughs> because we're not in those circles and you know, we're not in the circles of people who are between the ages of 40 and 50 desperately going through the world's worst midlife crisis would have voted for obama three times if i could sort of guy (laughs) who wants to be hip with the kids and is listening to this album made by you know a bunch of zillennial brits you know it's it's look i you know i'm happy this is like black midi right i you know i'm happy for wet league i i am i think that they're a goofy irreverent band and they seem to have a really good sense of humor about themselves even if i don't really like their music and i'm certainly glad that arcade fire didn't win although that oh, was God. never that was never going to happen you know because of the whole Win butler thing they were never going to win their Pierrick nomination
0: victory for us that they didn't win
1: <laughs> their nomination was either like something that was set in stone before the Win butler stuff came out or it was just like a an obligatory sort of nod of the head to the you know the oldest the old indie act but you know i had faith i i there was some part of me deep down that was hoping big thief could clinch it and they just they didn't or even even year Year, years i thought that year years album was really solid i I really liked that and it does feel a little bit like rubbing salt in the wound that this is i think the 12th or something like that nomination at the grammys that beric has gotten and she's not won a single one it's like come on what does she have to do at this point for you to just give her a bone Throw me a freaking bone here.
0: <laughs> like, F- is like, the album of hers that people have liked the most since, like, fucking, I can't even remember. Since but people, people like- Yeah, since um, Volna
1: for so, Fuck's sake. Yeah, I mean, could have given her, like, a, um, you know, an, one of those visual media Grammys or something. For, like, a music vi- for, like, the overall music video or something. Wait. But you didn't have to give her an it... album one. Give her, give her the fucking best liner notes, Grammy or something. Just give her something. How like, close to an EGOT would she be? Uh, I don't think she is remotely close to having Damn. a Tony Award. Um, but she, come on, Beard, get kicking! I don't, I don't think she won an Oscar for a dancer in the dark, did she? I think no. she was nominated. I think uh, she was only she's, nominated. She's since sworn off acting, although she was in The Northman for five minutes, I guess. So there's that. Maybe she'll come back. Who knows? Anyway, we're getting we're getting far further afield still here. I think that's basically all the all the Grammy commentary we need. Um it was a solid, you know, B minus Grammys overall. I think I, I it wasn't the worst thing in the world. Steve Lacey got to play Bad Habit, which is a song that has really grown on me. Like I love that song now. I think it might be my favorite hit, I, my favorite hit can song. Can I
0: confess something? What? I still haven't heard that song. I see it I, I, everywhere. I'm learning of it's existence as it's a, it's we a speak. It's a really I, I just know he was in the cool. internet. That is all I know about. He was in the
1: internet and then he was on that last, he had a feature playing guitar on that last Vampire Weekend album. I think he might've worked with Frank Ocean at one point. I don't know. And now he just has this, he puts out an album this year, a solo record and the single from that album just inexplicably blows up on TikTok, becomes a number one hit on the billboard charts. And, you know, I'm not saying that it's, you know, a, a, a stunning 10 out of 10 song or anything like that. I'm just saying that it's probably my favorite hit that, you know, aside from the Lizard song, I guess, of last year.
0: Oh, you know, you know why I haven't heard it is because on my car radio, it shows me the titles of songs as they come on and play. And whenever and I just see thought it was Bad Habits, I thought it was Ed Sheeran. <laughs> so I turned the volume down. Fuck, that's why.
1: Yeah. I was no. wondering why that was the case. It, it's funny because like Steve Lacey's Bad Habit is like w- way bigger than the Ed Sheeran's Bad Habit ever was. I- Despite him being like still basically an unknown. So that's awesome. That's just really cool. All right. Moving on with music news this week. I want to get into the other kind of big story of the week, quote unquote. And it's, we got to talk about this Pink Floyd beef. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Who's There is layers to this. It's not even one <laughs> news item. That it is several news items. It's something uh, that has, well, you know, it's history for starters, right? Roger Waters and David Gilmore have been beefing as long as they've known each other, basically. And, yeah. you know, they're... they're and they're the still skeletons. They're so. intra-band <laughs> beef and the way that fed into records like The Wall and then the Heinel Cut and, of course, the split uh, of Roger Waters leaving Pink Floyd. You know, all of that is part of rock history. It is the story that everyone who's, you know, remotely interested in the, the story of rock and the story of Pink Floyd, they know about the Roger Waters, David Gilmore beef. And they also probably know as well that they're well matched. In a certain sense, like you can make a case for Waters versus Gilmore as the you know the the star or the the real artistic visionary because Waters, of course, is the is the great writer. Waters is the great sort of song constructor and an album visionary and all that sort of thing. And Gilmore is the you know the guitar god essentially who takes those ideas that Water has and and t- pushes them into the stratosphere and makes them iconic. If, and so if you
0: know two people from Pink Floyd. Roger Waters and David Gilmore are the people. Like, like you-, you ask, like, you know, Joe Schmo on the street. They're not going to know that Richard Wright was in that band.
1: That's just such an unnecessary diss to Rick Wright and Nick Mason, but, you know. I mean, <laughs> fair enough.
0: I... You're I right. You're right. You're Pink right.
1: Pink Floyd. Pink Floyd are one of my favorite bands,
0: and I appreciate all of their contributions. But it, there is simply no person who is like on again who I if I go outside on the sidewalk and say, "Hey, name two members of Pink Floyd." They are not going to tell me anyone other than they David don't... Gilmore or. Well, well, for one, they're going to say Pink and Floyd. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Obviously, their beef was what completely was what ended Pink Floyd essentially because then David Gilmore had to basically hold it up. Uh, after him and and you know did he tried you know division bell's not bad it's a, that's a decent album i um, i think division bell is pretty good honestly and then pink floyd came apart that's i mean it's
2: it's not like waters was doing anything more interesting
1: well no the final cut nah. sucks so there's that um or it's like mid i don't like that it's pretty that much
2: and um it's it's like it, it's it's whatever.
1: Uh, well, the best song on it is not even on it because it's when the Tigers broke free. Tigers broke free, reason, and that's put that on the album properly. You put fucking not now John on there instead. Anyway, we're not talking <laughs> about that. We're not talking about how good late period Pink Floyd albums are. We're talking about how these old crusty people hate each other. There's an idea. <laughs> huh. Roger Waters, it's fair to say, has had a more successful solo career. He's put out records that people actually like uh in the time very and, good and he's, and he's managed to stay relevant for mostly fairly good reasons as well you know david gilmore i think the first i heard of this beef being relitigated this week was david gilmore in the news uh with his wife polly sampson calling roger an anti-semite uh and a misogynist which if you dig not into the it, first
0: time he's been called either for the which record if you
1: dig into it you know is actually Roger Waters is pro-Palestine, basically. And this is where this commentary comes from, because David Gilmour is a little bit more of a a Zionist, I suppose. Look, we are not getting into that. That's not, that's beside the point. Anyway, David Gilmour called him an anti-Semite and a misogynist and a Putin apologist. Um, There was this random thing, uh, Russia News, Roger Waters, let me see if I can find this, where I think it was like... um, russia there was this news item this week where the russian government asked roger waters to address the u.n about uh the ukraine's demands for more weapons and tanks and jets and stuff i can't believe that's a real thing that happened you you know he wrote the wall right like yeah
0: horrendous
1: yeah but of course you know roger waters came out and condemned russia's invasion of the ukraine why are we talking about (laughs) anyway they
0: made us they forced our hand
1: the all this is to say the actual news item that this is that's kind of come out of this that feels most relevant to us is roger water's announcement that he is is re-recording dark side of the moon which is on no matter what perspective you take on any of this is an objectively terrible idea God, awful! But i I love the i love the sheer. Kettiness that is behind it as well.
0: Oh, I, I mean, he is he is music history's most dedicated hater at this like, point. Like, like he's he basically... already he he did this with the wall, for those of you who don't know already, is that they basically they, they've had like legal battles in the past. I'm pretty sure they fought each other over who owns the rights to their website a couple of years ago. But even before that, Roger Waters, after splitting from Pink Floyd, was like, Hey, the wall is my fucking album. I'm going to re-record it and any live shows about uh, like uh, regards to like the wall and its music, only I can perform them. And he was successful in that endeavor. And I think partially just in the greater consciousness, it's kind of accepted that the wall is sort of a, obviously it relies on the musical contributions of his bandmates very heavily. You know, what is comfortably numb without David Gilmore, but at the same time, the wall is the Roger Waters ego project. It, it is in spirit his, so I can kind of understand. But him doing this for
1: dark side of the moon?
0: Well,
2: I mean
1: nobody wants to
0: see
2: nobody wants to hear you sing time. His, his justification,
1: Roger. <laughs> his justification for this is the most vague thing I've ever heard. Because not enough people recognize what it's about and what I was saying. You only wrote three songs on it. So, So, yeah, he said that he has actually actually not even that he's planning to re-record it. He has re-recorded it, or he's at least done most of it. And so Telegraph journalist Tristram Fane Saunders has heard this apparently. And in a Rolling Stone article uh, or an interview with him, he described uh these descriptions of it sound so funny to me so i'm just going to quote from the rolling stone article here saunders claims he is one of a handful of people who have listened to the solo album from start to finish and described parts of the re-recording as very good In, in particular saunders touts time as terrific with his old man's timbre and the re-recorded version of "Money" as a country tinged cut, reminiscent of late Johnny Cash, and I'm just like, when I think about what appeals, what appeals to me about those songs, I don't want to hear a fucking hurt Johnny Cash version of "Money." I don't want to no. hear a fucking like groany, pasty old man trying to carry the, ch- the 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 long vocal lines of time. I don't even want to imagine what he's done to fucking brain damage or great gig in the sky or Uh... or or songs like on the run which is like the whole appeal of that is the the specific synthesizers and tech that was being used in the 70s that would that if you try to replicate them now with modern you know plugins and shit would sound nothing would just sound so flat and awful it's just a terrible idea on every conceivable oh, level.
0: <laughs> Dark side of the moon, Taylor's version. Yeah, yeah I, no, I well, I, no, he Rogers should, though. That's what
1: he joke. should do. He should call it, yeah, Roger's version, in parentheses. And that, that would, that's, I would give that... That's
0: a... hilarious, because Roger is just <laughs> empirically Release. a worse name than Taylor's, so just calling it Release. Roger's version. Release the water's cut. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, he's going to add, like, a whole new hour of of leftover material that's just a soft way of selling his new shit on the album, probably. I don't no. know. I wouldn't be surprised. Look, Roger Waters, from what I can gather, you know, he has said a lot of things politically that I happen to agree with. He seems to be a very righteous guy with his with a lot who supports a lot of causes that very few other artists with his stature would have the boldness to stick their neck out and yeah. stand for but that doesn't excuse or make me excited for this in any sense at all
0: Roger Waters is the original rock music egotist he's the predecessor to the Kanye's of the world and that he said a bunch of politically divisive shit he's this egomaniac who inextricably these elements that make him such a controversial figure also play a key role in making him a deeply compelling artist with a hugely loyal fan base that find him like that you know would swim to the ends of the earth for his music and what it's done for people so like it's funny just because by all accounts david gilmore at least seems to be the the more amicable presence and at the same time like when it comes to music that they've made after pink floyd God, I you couldn't pay me to listen to David Gilmore solo shit, dude.
1: It's funny because to me, it's like I'm being very shallow now. I'm talking about it on a real like sort of high school level, but it's really just like the the ugly guy who's like got the artistic (laughs) genius inside of him, but the hot guy who doesn't need any of that shit to be beloved, who can just kind of pick up a guitar and just be perfect. And it looks like yeah. you know he was fucking molded. I mean, if you watched live at Pompeii, and you, and you just get lost in the every single shot of David Gilmore's eyes, you just <sighs> <laughs> <laughs> and he and he's just like the most. And then Roger Waters is like, "Hey, looking fifty already."
2: He's <laughs> just a gremlin in the corner with the Fender Precision base.
1: <laughs> and it's like he 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 can't. He, he, bam, he doesn't bam, have the musical bam, skill bam, of David bam, Gilmore. Bam, bam, bam. His his singing voice is like just just not as beautiful either. Is like in every sense, Roger Waters is just less appealing. But he happens to you know that he, he obviously is the artistic. You know the the yeah. He, he let's just say it. He he's it's like that saying. He's got a voice made for. He's got a face made for radio. That's the saying, and that's Roger Waters, uh, in a nutshell. Yeah
2: and a voice for silent films.
1: But <laughs> <laughs> like he's a good he's a, he's a he, you know he sings well on the wall and on those albums where he sings. It is, it is, his it his is, singing voice it is, is, is in tune. Yeah, and yes. he like he's not a great singing voice but it's really well suited to like anger and righteousness on albums like Animals and the Wall and you can like, a solid sixty-five
0: percent of most of the like most famous rock vocalists of all time are adequate singers. They're average well, at best.
1: Pigs, three different ones wouldn't work if David was singing it because you just yeah. wouldn't buy it. Yes. You would be thinking, "Damn, this Thatcher must be a beautiful lady," because <laughs> 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 you need to have the crusty Gremlin singing those songs because that's the spirit You're of those songs.
0: Rusty jugglers.
1: Anyway, <laughs> well, look, we we'll, we will wait with bated breath to see when slash if this Dark Side reissue. So I will say I am morbidly curious. Oh, Ab, I will I, totally I, w- I, look. We we have to do a record club
0: on Dark Side of the Moon when this rolls around, regardless. So we should at least have a segment where we talk about it if it's worth talking about. Truly, truly, no, we, have do, we have to do. We
1: have to. We have someone on this Godforsaken website has to talk about Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. It's gone undersung for so long. All right, moving on <laughs> with the news. We also have to talk about as well, one of the biggest uh sources of discourse on Twitter this week in the music world was that you know the the great, the legendary Steve Albini, you know, producer to the stars, frontman of Big Black and Shellac and another band that whose name I can't say had <laughs> decided he had some opinions on steely dan that he needed to express and look a lot of you know a lot of it was a flame war i was stunned at how taken with this twitter was it really sustained twitter for an entire day i couldn't believe it i mean this is the
2: first time anyone has listened to steve albini about anything in the past 30 years
1: I want to just address something because I've seen a lot of people being like, well, How can you be surprised that Steve Albini doesn't like Steely Dan? He's from the punk world, and Steely Dan are from the yacht riding. are completely free. no one is surprised about this. No one, not a single person, was surprised. The reason this was a thing was his whole attitude, which was like, Oh, well, of course. I don't, I don't like Steely Dan or, or whatever he said. It was like, oh no, his his friends. I'm was, always
0: going to be the kind of punk who doesn't who shits on Steely Dan.
1: Kind of be the kind of punk who shits on Steely Dan because that's just the way. Of, and look, I <laughs> this didn't piss me off like it pissed some people off. I think he he went on Stephen Hayden. <laughs> I don't think it legitimately pissed Steve Hayden off. <laughs> I just think that he was really enjoying the shitstorm um and it was like you know it's the kind of thing where you know you're throwing shots so you're obviously welcoming shot you, you know that you, when you throw shots shots are going to come back and it was really funny to see and i'm not i'm not pretending i'm Steely exempt from dan's this. got shooters i'm not and they do Everybody i mean they fucking do if you've been on steely dan twitter they're insane but like, i'm not pretending i'm exempt from this but you had some real like some yacht rockers Who really got who really went hard in the paint here and really just decided to take this personal? And it was so funny to watch this just complete explosion of like Steely Dan discourse of are they really as good as they people say, or you know, because the the disc I've and I see this in my Steely Dan video the discourse on. You know, our Steely Dan has swung and su- like back and forth, and over the years, people were bringing up the two thousand Grammys where they won Album of the Year over Kid A again, and it was just going crazy. And there's no definitive opinion on Steely Dan at this point. There are very vocal defenders. No. And they, I think, are way out of pocket if they want to pretend in 2023 that Steely Dan are still underrated because they're not, they maybe were 10 years no. ago, but they're not anymore. You guys, if, if you made Asia, voice.
0: then you're not underrated.
1: No, but I just, I'm just saying, like, they don't get anywhere near the amount of hate that would justify how hard and viscerally violent their stands go for them now. <laughs> just so funny to say the word stands because these are guys in their 60s and 70s steely
0: stands
1: you know these are regular rick beato viewers and you know and i have to reckon with the fact that you
2: know queer people in their 20s because (laughs) you have to be honest that's a significant
1: dynamic of steely dan fandom now where you're either 70 years old and you know have completely paid off your mortgage and have seven kids or you are transgender
0: (laughs) (laughs) no lies were spoken on this podcast today
1: and you're like you know 19 years old with a neo pronoun and that that's the two demographics right and look I'm not saying that, you know, we're queer. I'm not saying that with any level of hostility. Love to everyone. Love to the 70-year-old guys. I get a lot of them in my mentions whenever I post a screen cap of fucking Black Friday or Ricky Don't Lose That Number. They're fucking there straight away. I love them. God loves them. You know, Steely Dan fans on Twitter are, they're fucking hysterical. Um, And there's definitely some self-awareness there about how, like, hard in the paint they ride. But at the end of the day, you know what's the funniest thing about all of this is that i don't think donald fagan even knows about any of this i don't think he's even remotely aware that this is a thing and i think if he were he wouldn't care um he he sure as shit wouldn't like any music that steve albini has made so it, (laughs) it, it, it would go both ways
2: i found this entire thing hilarious on everyone's parts the shots that albini was taking endlessly funny to me like, what's this? Uh, this is my favorite one. <laughs> Their engineer invented a machine to play the bass drum.
1: <laughs> Did he now? <laughs> and yet it sounds like this. <laughs> yeah, hey, look. Look, look. Okay, Albini Big was, Black. Albini was throwing <laughs> shots, and I, I, I uh, don't know. What I love about. Look this at whole yourselves thing,
2: <laughs> calling them the Dan. Go trim your beard. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, what I, I love.
0: love- I recently re-watched Riley's discography video for Steely Dan, which if you're interested in their music, go watch that. It's a great video. But in it, you call them the Dan 60 times. <laughs> that
1: sounds about right. Moving on from this now, I I have in my notes for things to talk about here, an absolutely confounding four-word phrase, David M Eminem Deepfake. Uh, so I need to really quickly remind myself. All oh, right, okay. I the fuck did it. you just say to me? So David Guetta, you know, who we who we know and love from his very brief time in the limelight as one of the world's inexplicably one of the world's most well-known producers in the you know EDM craze era of the late 2000s, early George 2010s. Recently, yeah, I was getting to that. Recently, <laughs> recently became famous again for shout outs to his family. And it's sampling God. Martin Luther King Jr. <laughs> it was God, one of the greatest things anyone's myself. ever done. That helped me get through quarantine. <laughs> people have said, you know, people have made that joke about different things over the years. Oh, this ended racism. Run the Jewels ended racism. Um, Eminem and Jay-Z ended racism. No, David Guetta sampling Martin Luther King over a 2008 beat drop that he was playing in 2020 and saying shout outs to his family about george floyd that ended racism right riley
0: i am i am 99 certain because myself and friend of the podcast jen we met up a little while ago and we watched this video in their apartment and i swear to god it's called david getta
1: ends racism (laughs) the people have spoken and I you know, I say this in my authority as a white person. Racism exists no more. As long as David is around. I think when David Gitter dies, racism might return. You know. And it's crazy. Everything David Keep Gitter does everything David Gitter's done since then has been funny. Like the last thing he was famous <laughs> for was this, you know, terrible song that he made for Baby Rexar that was out like five years ago. Yeah. BB
0: Rex is not a real person. Everyone keeps talking about her like I should know I mean, who she is. And you're all it's wrong. It's definitely not a real name.
1: Yeah. Well <laughs>
2: that is a that is a computer program.
1: So yeah, this song that he made with this BB Rexar.
0: Person. I'm good, yeah, I'm feeling alright.
1: <laughs> this, this, exactly, <laughs> this, exactly this interpolation of iPhone I- 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 65's blue, like, th- you could not... so have. awful. It's it's something, you can't make this shit up. That's how fucking... If we did our top ten
0: worst songs of the year list last year, like we had done in years previous, that would have absolutely made the cut.
1: <laughs> Everything David Guetta does is, the, is, is a sentence that's never been said before by a human being. That's everything he does now. And so here we have uh, David Guetta has made a song with a deep fake Eminem vocals and played it at a show, which is the latest thing that he's done. you uh, know, you know deep, you know, deep fake technology is terrifyingly good now. It's terrifyingly realistic. I feel like every day on Twitter you're getting some, you know, lighthearted use of this technology my favorite is the recurring bit of getting joe biden to to say rap lyrics but like not just specifically
0: more- chief keef songs
1: yeah <laughs> the, the, the video of, of deep fake joe biden like perfectly perfectly reciting the intro to chief keef's love Sosa is legitimately something i have seen over 50 times you and have to put time- it here Chief Keith Owen, back. Chief Keith Owen. <laughs> I can't even like. I can't even like f- make fun of yeah, it by that like, reciting. That sounded
2: it a, a bit like Joe Biden actually trying to recite it.
1: <laughs>
2: Chief Keith, <laughs> Chief uh, 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 uh Sunny. I need to like uh, uh, <laughs> malarkey. Just listen, <laughs> listen to this shit, right? All <laughs> oh, y'all fuckers talking about Chief Keith and Chief Keith and this Chief Keith thing. Shut the fuck up. Don't, you don't know that you got caught with a ratchet, shooting police and shit. Maybe have been on probation since fucking I don't know when. Like, motherfuckers stop fucking playing him like that. And it's all sandwiches out. There. I catch another motherfucker talking sweet about Chief Keefe, I'm, <laughs> so I'm
0: not playing the AI is so good, it makes it makes this version of Joe Biden speak uh, more fluently than he actually does when he's, like, doing, like, the addressing the house. Which, honestly, I feel like has to translate to this Eminem deepfake in some regard. This is, a, I can't believe I just said that sentence. Because, like... In order to accurately replicate MM's flow in the 2010s and 2020s, you have to be an AI who's like constantly stuttering like the, that's an awfully hot coffee pot. Let me just find this.
1: We might as well listen to it. This is
2: the future rage now. I'm getting off in the underground. There's something that I made as a joke, and it works so good I could not believe it. I discovered those websites that are about uh, AI, basically you can write lyrics in the style of any artist you like. So I typed, write a verse in the style of Eminem about future rave. And I went to another AI website that can recreate the, vo- the voice. I put the text in that and I played the record and people went nuts.
1: And we're supposed to believe that Eminem was the AI in that video? I love how he explains the process. Like he's the first person to ever do this. And then, and then like he's giving up. I, I went to another website. that can recreate the voice. I shouldn't be mocking him. Someone's probably going to get offended by that. So that's that's chaos. Those are the new. That's the news this week. In terms of new single drops this week as well. I want to talk about the new Depeche Mode song. Because mm. um, they dropped their first song uh, since the passing of Fletch. Of Andrew Fletcher. Of course, he passed away last year, and it is the lead single for their upcoming album, uh, Memento Mori. Now, I don't actually know whether this was recorded before or after uh, Fletch passed away. I mean, it would seem, based on the general mood and and feel of it, that it might have been done after he passed away. But I don't want to make that assumption, uh, because I've been hearing about this album, I feel like, for a while. But this is the first time that we have actually gotten a single and the album's coming out next month so it's not that far away and the song's called Ghosts Again it is it's definitely a Depeche Mode song it seems to be a step up from because Depeche Mode were kind of in a bit of a tailspin creatively with their last couple albums especially 2017 Spirit which was you know when I think of fine it, it wasn't terrible but when I think of like the the specific brand of like post trump election albums made by big artists who feel they have to speak to the moment
0: Uh, that was certainly
1: one of the you know it was it was you know especially songs like where's the revolution like just enough fellas have taken six years off and they're back and i mean already just on rate your music the single has the highest rating of any single they've released since fucking playing the angel era so Jeez. And it is a good song. It's, a, it's a, I it is. It was a really good song. What did you guys think? Very MGMT,
2: strangely enough. Ooh, um, good calm. Which I, yeah. think they, I think is a look they wear well.
1: It's got this kind of, you know, it still um, stays true to their synth-based sort of roots, obviously, but it has this kind of, you know, it is obviously a sad song. It has this moroseness to mm-hmm. it. And even like the album cover as well, this jet black, you know, um, aesthetic with the, with the, the angel wings on the front you know it looks kind of corny but at the same time it also kind of it's so, done so starkly that it also just is a little bit affecting i am really looking forward to seeing the shape this album takes
0: gahan's vocals are like really like they sound fantastic i haven't really listened to a lot of like post 90s depeche mode or anything so i can't really speak He's to the evolution always- Okay. Yeah, he's pretty much only sounded this good. But, he definitely yeah. sounds older, but in a way that 100% complements the music. He doesn't quite have the power, but the the kind of frailty that he leans into really complements a song like this.
1: Mm. Well, I'm definitely going to keep revisiting those late period albums in the lead up to this new one, but I was surprised by how much I liked this single. I, I just had mm-hmm. kind of resigned myself to not really getting into Depeche Mode again in terms of like new material but this surprised me and it will be definitely a somber affair based on the theme of it and you know mm-hmm. Fletcher's passing so yeah definitely worth checking out okay before we get into what we've been listening to though and continuing a somber note we also need to talk about a couple of um, massive music musicians like legends who passed away mm-hmm. uh, first one i want to talk about is one that we would have talked about last week, but we were planning on doing a record club on this artist's most beloved album. Just didn't quite pan out. we weren't able to make it work with everyone. We wanted to be a part of it. So we'll shout him out here instead. Of course, Tom Verlaine passed away a couple of weeks ago, legendary guitarist of television and, you know, more relevant, I suppose, to our interests, inspiration for a fantastic Always song. Um,
0: also work with Jeff Buckley.
1: Yeah, I also worked with Chief Buckley, like one of a true musical legend, someone who basically threw his main band in the context of one absolutely perfect, astonishing album, you know, made his mark on the world of of rock music and, and, and guitar playing and then just completely, obviously they had one more album after that, but it was almost like he said all he had to say and then he moved on and ended up being this figure who, was behind a lot of some some of the greatest music that's come out ever since. You know, the the artist that he's been involved with, obviously he was a big part of Patti Smith's Horses even before he made Marquee Moon, but he's also worked with David Bowie on Scary Monsters and Super Creeps, and actually a couple of different albums, I think, as well. He's worked with Sushi and the Banshees, famously, he's worked with Ricka Kasek. he's worked um, with uh, Jeff Buckley, as you've mentioned as well. Just one of the greats that, you know, obviously he's been around and it's not exactly, you know, like we weren't expecting him to live forever. But this one really, really hit me as being in terms of being like one of the first figures in the world of like guitar playing and as a guitar extraordinaire that I recognize as a teenager and kind of latched on to. So, yeah, Morgan, anything you want to add?
2: Uh Yeah, I mean, I haven't had Mark Moon in my life all that long. Uh, it's been it was something that I was just meaning to get around to for ages and I had gotten about halfway through it in the, a couple months before uh, Verlaine passed and I figured his passing was uh, you know it was high time that I actually uh, see that one through and it was certainly a worthy journey. Not, his guitar playing is always lauded and for great reason I mean just the you know, it's not like he's up there like Yngwie Malmstein, but the way that he crafts hooks is so idiosyncratic and specific and infectious, and it's all over that album, and it's heard in so many albums like it that followed.
1: He What he did with the guitar solo, particularly the Marky Moon guitar solo, the, the final solo on that song that he played... Well, for starters, like it presaged the punk scene in these huge ways, and because it came before the punk explosion, it was recorded right before the punk explosion, and was I think, you know, we associate punk so much with this kind of rough, shod simplicity and this kind of rejection of of complexity and even of of musical knowledge to a certain extent, but Verlaine kind of set a precedent that intricacy and composition and actually doing innovative things with the way that you construct solos is something that still can be a part of that p- more primal vision of what rock music could be. And so he his vision for how to play the guitar and how to solo in particular feels like super just important and and like it's been a lasting impact on basically all the guitarists that we love in rock music and in modern progressive music as well. Um, has I mean you don't have guitarists like you know Guthrie Govan for instance without Tom Verlaine like you don't have that level of um sort of uh, this combination of intricacy and power as well it's very art rock but also at the same time it has this fluidity and emotion that comes through that not a lot of art rock you know intricate post-punky guitar stylings always have it's just he's he's just it's hard to explain beyond that and i'm no guitar expert but uh, yeah.
2: yeah doug of built oh yeah mind.
1: yeah shit yeah uh, great great point
2: he's he it, there's just there's just sprinklings of verlaine and so much post-punk and indie rock and even shoegaze uh it, yeah it's hard to quantify um but it, I, his vocal presence on Mark moon as well because he's on lead uh, for that album uh, just utterly infectious uh like if you can get through see no evil or especially the chorus of that song mm. without smiling from ear to ear you you may be a little bit decrepit inside yeah, um, yeah he's he's the hooks yeah. on
1: that album are, are outstanding sensational very easy to get stuck in your head and to, to keep up the sadness more recently we lost bert Bacharak one of the great visionaries of popular music in general. I passed away at the age of 94 this week. And, you know, even if you don't have an immediate personal connection to Burt Bacharach, the influence he's had and the, the the kind of craftsmanship that he took and the, how far reaching the music he made is into basically all forms of popular music is kind of incalculable
0: dude worked for people like Dion Warwick when he first started Um, you know like lots of like jazz and soul kind of like standards very early on and I think just never really stopped after that I mean surely in his later life he didn't but I mean he was still working and producing in like the 2010s and what have you like he's credited on so so many albums that like he i mean he's credited on frank ocean's blonde for fuck's sake so Mm. i I mean you can find him basically anywhere he's one of those figures in popular music who is so ubiquitous that again even if you don't know his name i wager to say half of your favorite like you, you know musical tastes like that they they owe something to him
1: also he's like he may be you know, you, you could debate and there's probably statistics on like what the most covered songs of all time are. There's probably loads of, of really fantastic contenders, but I would wager very few people, very few individual single human beings would have written as many of them as Bert Bacharach has. I mean, songs like The Look of Love, Make It Easy on Yourself, I Just Don't Know What To Do With Yourself, of course, the songs he wrote for Dusty Springfield, Raindrops Keep Falling On My Head, I'll Never Fall In mm-hmm. Love Again, On My Own, the Pale LaBelle song, the close to you, the Carpenters song or the Carpenters cover oh, I guess, yeah. of his song with Hal David, uh, of course, Aretha Franklin's, I say a little prayer, which of course she took from Diane Warwick, which, which um, Bacharach wrote. And of course, maybe his most famous song for Dionne Warwick, which is walk on by like, you just, you get a, if you go through the songs that Bacharach has written and then you follow the covers of those songs, the artists he's given those songs to and the, the legacies of those individual songs, you have this ripple effect on popular music that's, you know, just kind of impossible to fathom. So here's the Bacharach for an incredible career, an incredible life, an incredible artistic track record and just being one of those figures who has left such an imprint on popular music uh, forever.
0: Riley mentioned last week that there's going to be an anniversary release of the Elton John album Honky Chateau, uh, which is one of my favorite Elton John albums, uh, certainly up there. And I've mentioned him on the podcast before last year. I talked about listening to uh, the anniversary edition of Yellow Brick Road, which I, I think is commonly considered his best. That's got like five of the single most popular pop singles, not even that Elton John ever made, but just, you know anyone has ever made and then all of the album deep cuts are spectacular and that's sort of his big double album cocaine fueled masterpiece Um, but a lot of I, I think that my appreciation of Elton and his work goes back to the fact that those first like seven albums he's got shit just does not get better than that uh, and I've been meaning to sort of get back around to them to just sort of explore Uh, his discography a little bit more and to sort of brush myself up because I want to do like a proper ranking of his records. So I listened to um, stuff like Madman Across the Water. That's the album that has Tiny Dancer on it, which is a great album, but probably the most uneven record that he released in that string. Uh, Honky Chateau is still amazing. Um, I'm really fond of the underrated self-titled and 1973's Don't Shoot Me, I'm Only the Piano Player uh those are two really just sort of fundamentally elemental records that are just super great uh and i also listened for the first time 1970s tumbleweed connection which is a kind of it's certainly more piano rock than anything but it has a very distinct country tinge to it and all of the songs sort of feel kind of thematically connected um it's a terrific album also i i really enjoy that a lot more than i thought i was going to considering nobody talks about this record but like holy shit some of his best songs are on here come down in time uh talking old soldiers burn down the mission it these are songs that make you completely aware of the fact that most of your favorite modern singer songwriters owe so much to elton john i think the thing that just absolutely blew me away was specifically this album sounds so much like father John Misty, like, Holy shit. That dude owes everything to Elton John's first phase of his career. Like the, the witty acerbic and satirical writing, the sort of conceptual shit, like all of that stuff is here. If you want an in with him, that's a pretty good record. But I got to say, I, I still think that goodbye. Yellow brick road is probably my favorite i i wouldn't stand by it but because i'm i'm currently trying to decide which one it is between this and i think the the album of his that i hear talked about the least even in people who talk about his records that being captain fantastic and the brown dirt cowboy this album is fucking great capital g great and I don't hear anyone talk about it. It's only the, I think it might be due to the fact that the only single on here is someone Save my life tonight. So it doesn't have as many of those like big heavy hitter Elton John singles, even though this is relatively popular, which coincidentally is, I don't know if maybe I just haven't heard this relative to all of his bigger songs, but this is a, a perfect, a perfect pop song an incredibly like, and also just a, a very kind of dark song when you basically consider the fact that it's just like, this is more or less about Elton John singing about him and his fast and loose lifestyle in the seventies, doing lots of cocaine. This is a song that's basically him talking to death. It's, it's, it's really, really interesting once you dissect all of the storytelling elements of his songwriting. And this is sort of his, album that was inspired by Sgt. pepper's lonely hearts club band by the beatles or uh ziggy stardust by david bowie where he attempts to sort of take on a persona and make the most sort of colorful music as possible and there's like full orchestral arrangements on here there is a huge southern rock element on here that really does make you think of david bowie uh the bone one of the bonus tracks is actually a cover of lucy in the sky with diamonds and I'm not going to lie. I think I kind of prefer this version over the Beatles version. But the, the arrangements on here are amazing. The tunes are fucking timeless. I love this record. I mean, I I can see why Someone Saved My Life Tonight is certainly the standout for most people. But the title track is just as good. There's songs like We All Fall In Love Sometimes, uh, Gotta Get a Meal Ticket. This is just a relentlessly momentum fueled fun record that's every bit as good as Sgt. Pepper's or uh, Ziggy Stardust in the same way that albums like that are good. And I, I highly recommend that to anyone who wants to get into his albums proper. It's a really tight record. It, you know, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road is easy to recommend, but it is a double album and it does it. You know, it's it's big. Not exactly as easy to get into. Uh, I just and... want
1: to point out really quickly how tragic it is that, again, I hate to keep talking about Rate Your Music, but like, yeah, you know, go to Alton John's Write Your Music page, you go to the the images, you know, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, big, massive album cover there, you know, mm-hmm. awesome album cover, really gives you an impression of, of the artist, and then you click on Bernie Torpen's page, and the Ooh. the cover that represents him is the original songs from the movie Nomeo
0: and, and Juliet, yeah, and it's just like, um... this
1: is the man! Who wrote basically, like, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, like 90% of Elton's lyrics?
0: Oh. Elton and Bernie are, for all intents and purposes, if you love Elton John, you love him because of Bernie Taupin. Like, he is an essential aspect of all of his greatest songs and greatest records. Like, he I, just an, a a completely singular pop songwriting presence. This is as good as anyone who has ever done any of this. And I was so into listening to these records, and I was just like, "God, these are all so great, so fun, such so such underrated as like legitimate, singular bodies of work. Maybe I should do like a discography breakdown. It would be really long because he's got a lot of albums. And then I just I looked ahead at some of his other records. And past this phase of his career, man, this shit is rough. This shit's really rough. Like he's got some, I've actually listened to some of his later albums, like Captain and the Kid, which is a very good record or Too Low for Zero, which has some of his uh, like beloved songs on there. Like uh, I'm Still Standing. Uh, but he has a lot of albums that are very wholly unremarkable or just straight up fucking terrible. I don't even remember why I listened to Victim of Love, but I have listened to it it is fucking terrible. Like Jesus Christ, it's bad.
1: Let's get into our main topic of discussion today, which is of course, because it's Valentine's day, we're here to talk about our favorite love songs. We have each picked three songs that to us mean an awful lot that we consider to be great songs, but particularly great love songs. Try to avoid obvious picks as well. Uh, I think if I've got a few honorable mentions as well. So if you two have honorable mentions, you can feel free to rattle those off before you mention your first pick as well. But let's take the time now to go through uh, each of our picks for our favorite love songs. So Jake, what do you want to go off with first?
0: Well, I may have joked earlier and said, Haha, ha, I didn't pick a Tom Waits song. Good for me. So I instead pivoted and went to who is commonly considered the greatest songwriter of all time, that being Bob Dylan. And it's funny just because I feel like when you think about great Bob Dylan songs, you don't necessarily think about love songs. And that's kind of why my choice here is a bit unconventional as I kind of, it is a song that's definitely about love, but I think more generally, it's just sort of the sense of security that you find in someone else. And that being, of course, from his album, blood on the tracks, my favorite Bob Dylan album, shelter from the storm, uh, which is very, very comfortably my second favorite Bob Dylan song after most of the time. Um, And it's just, Everything about this screams timeless. The the melody on it is timeless. I feel like that's an underrated quality of a lot of Bob Dylan's songwriting, is that he's, you know, often complimented for being this metaphorical, allegorical, fucking lyrical, very miracle. L- lyrical miracle, <laughs> uh very like literate kind of like scholarly sort of writer, at least in his, you know, the records of his heyday. But I feel like this actual knack for solid, tight song construction goes a bit undersung, and it's at its best on something like Blood on the Tracks, and it's, you know, it's paired back enough to feel intimate, to feel like it has that sort of sense of closeness, and I feel like that's why, generally speaking, I feel like most of my favorite love songs are kind of folk and folk adjacent is that's just the genre of music that not only revolves around this topic a lot but just lends itself to the nature of intimacy very well and shelter from the storm uh is just it's a song where essentially bob sort of goes through the same sort of structure multiple times the sort of verse that talks about you know being this sort of lowly kind of wretched thing uh a creature void of form being one of my favorite lyrics just, on here just, just, and just a little gremlin just a little gremlin, gremlin man, man little tiny little tiny sunglasses and hat bob dylan gremlin man everything about like Dylan's songwriting in this era here is very almost mythological and there is something about it that feels like that here but there's always like this set of contradictory lyrics or this sort of humiliation like lyrically description wise that Dylan will put himself through and then always end it with the sort of greeting of come in I'll show you yeah Sorry, I just ate some really hot and hot
2: waste Give you yeah. it. And from the
0: storm. Uh and it's sort of an offer for for refuge. And no matter what, no matter what kind of sort of lyrical ventures Dylan goes off on, there's always greeted with that same simple phrase. And it just sort of builds into you this sort of sense of comfort just upon hearing it the sort of security and reliability of someone who will accept you someone will shield you from the horrors of the world and also the horrors of like oneself there's a really you know underlying sense of self-loathing and inadequacy in this song and the way that dylan describes himself uh it is a properly kind of pathetic song if you read into it, but there is a a kind of universal sort of clarity that it's given most of Dylan's best songs that just feels really hopeful, and it just makes you feel like you're, you're being hugged, and it's just that simple, gentle reminder of someone who will always accept you, and that's sort of what I, I value in this song the most.
1: It's like also when you listen to Blood on the Tracks, you go through it on that album, right? It uh-huh. is a tough listen emotionally and shout from mm-hmm. the storm is the penultimate track. I think. Yes. So it, it comes is. in the final stretch and it feels like a weight off when you mm-hmm. get to it. It really feels like you have been out in the storm and you are getting that refuge. I have a really funny story to tell about my relationship with a song. Very, I'll keep it quick. Is that, um, one of my favorite movies as a kid, you're going to, I've probably, I don't know if I've, t- I've probably told you this before, but you're probably going to roll your eyes at me. But one of my favorite movies as a kid, just because I saw it when I was very young and I don't know, I just attached myself to it for a long time. For some reason is the Cameron Crowe film, Jerry Maguire. I I, I don't know. I just, I love that movie as a kid. I watched it over and over again. My dad had it on VHS and I like love just quoting Cuba Gooding Jr. The of The
0: needle drop.
1: And if you've seen that movie you may remember that in the very final scene as the credits are coming up a particular song by Bob Dylan called "Shadow from the Storm" starts playing and I saw that movie dozens of times as a kid and so that was like that was my first favorite Bob Dylan song as well it was one of the first Bob Dylan songs I probably ever heard consciously and it stayed a huge part of just my what I think about when I think about him and the emotional connection I've kind of forged with his music. That song is right up there at the forefront. Anyway, yeah. Morgan, what is your first pick for favorite love songs?
2: Well, you said in the preamble to this that we were trying to avoid more obvious picks. Um, I, this one is so obvious that it's, you know, the artist has been mentioned immediately preceding this it's bob dylan's make you feel my love however it is specifically the adele version um the superior version i i yeah i i i don't care for the time out of mind version much at all
0: really it's fine it's like okay um make you feel my love
2: And the rain is blowing (laughs) in your face.
1: In other words.
2: (laughs) It's similar to Shelter from the Storm in the sense that a partner in life can be almost like a home to you. In the sense that you can find solace in their presence. And that's sort of a, a, a running theme throughout portions of Dylan's discography Uh, it's just the way that he writes about love in that sense and yeah personally this is the most compact sincere translation
0: of that notion a song so good even the glee version of it is good
1: it's like Adele completely transforms that song without really changing the tone of it all that much she just inhabits that space so well and makes it feel more like an Adele song than a Bob Dylan song even though he does Mm -hmm. you know as Jay has expressed he's great at writing love songs but yeah Adele is just made to record that song so with each of my picks I have tried to capture a song that is about love or that is a love song in a very different way to the other picks and I've tried to keep them quite distinct and unique from one another Um, before I get to that, I want to shout out a a couple of honorary mentions songs that I either didn't include because I just couldn't justify putting it in over the other three, or it was just too famous already. Like two very obvious picks, but songs that are nonetheless, I think two of the greatest love songs ever written are talking heads. This must be the place. And, um, Sufjan Stevens, the predatory wasp of the Palisades is out to get us. Um, I particularly wanted to mention the Sufjan one because that's like a, an explicitly gay love song as well, which I don't know that we it's have. It's one of my
0: favorites as well.
1: Um, so that's a great song. I also want to shout out um, the song Saturday by the band The Clientele uh, off their album Suburban Life. Ooh,
0: Light. yeah, um, yeah.
1: That, that song, I, I was when I was revisiting songs that I love that are about love, like, I, I was particularly taken with that song. Uh, it's some of the most beautiful lyrics ever written about being in love with someone. And so I highly recommend checking that out. But my verse pick today, probably the most unconventional of my three uh, in the sense that it's not like a ballad. It's actually not a ballad at all. It's a blood pumping, chest pounding indie rock song from one of my favorite indie rock bands of the 2000s from one of the best indie rock albums of the 2000s. I am talking about Wolf Parade and their immortal song, I'll Believe in Anything. Uh, this song is one of my favorite songs ever. Doesn't even matter, a love song or not. Few songs get me as fucking pumped up as this song does, and it is just this full throated, absolute statement of devotion and protection that sounds like a madman is singing it. Because of course, uh, Spencer Krug is singing the song. Uh, one of the two front men of Walt Parade, and his voice is very distinct. Uh, he has this kind of bleating, uh. Howly sort of tone that he has that I could understand if people hated it but I just I love the way he sings I love the way he leans into the limits of his voice as well but there's just lyrics on this song and th- that are so just surreal they're obviously about love and devotion and the sense to which you feel like you love someone so much you want to like take them and in- put them inside of you but not in a sexual way in a sense where you want to kind of consume their everything and um also that you're willing to kind of just devote yourself unabashedly and unashamedly to them in every single sense like the the chorus refrain of give me your eyes i need the sunshine is one of my favorite uh chorus lyrics of Get all time Your eyes. I I need sunshine, sunshine. Sunshine. it's so good also just that continuous refrain of I'll take you where nobody knows you and nobody gives a damn this whole you know idea of escape as well I'm particularly someone who romanticizes in love songs the idea of escape so the idea of love uh and being in love with someone as a means of escaping everything else the like the entire world and everything that comprises it and I'll believe in anything it's just but we don't like...
2: have time to unpack that <laughs>
1: we don't um and there's just lyrics on here that are like kind of amateurish but in a way that really appeals to me like we've both been very brave we walk around with both legs like like just the idea of 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 just standing up as this act of defiance it sounds kind of childish in the song and spencer has a kind of childish voice that i love i don't know i've never i've heard this song for probably over a decade now this album has been in my life. I still don't know what, if I could get the fire out from the wire, I'd share a life and you'd share a life means, but I believe that it is, I it sounds romantic as fuck to me. And it, it wouldn't
2: surprise me considering his delivery of that line, if it wasn't an in-studio ad lib.
1: Hmm yeah and just that the bridge is so good on the song as well like i could take another hit for you and i could take away your trips from you and i could take away the salt from your eyes and take away what's been assaulting you that's great word play and great delivery and you have these very 2000s like hollering backing vocals and Jin just that this is this moment one of my favorite moments in all of music where he's like I could give you all the olive trees, look at the trees, look at my face and look at a place far away from here. And the song just explodes at that moment. And it's so good. Uh, check out the music video if you, haven't, if you haven't as well. It's like a Barry Lyndon sort of refer- referential thing where it's like set in like the 1800s. And it's about these really insecure men who fight over this woman by like firing cannons at each other. And it's just very funny. It has the same sort of sensibility of the song. It's just kind of geeky devotion that you don't really know how to express in a normal way. And yeah, it's one of my favorite songs of all time. So I had to mention it here.
0: Well, my second pick here is uh, going a little bit off uh, the beaten path from the the most critically lauded songwriter of all time to... And indie rock songwriter people definitely like a lot. Um, that being uh, one Mr. Connor Oberst uh, from the album Casadega by Bright Eyes. If you know me, if you've listened to the podcast for any amount of time at all, you'll know that I'm pretty sure, I mean, to some extent, I mean, I guess everyone but Morgan is a really big Bright Eyes fan. Um, like, even August has sung the praises of stuff like Lifted. And uh, Casadega, I think, is a prime candidate for one of the most underrated and underappreciated albums ever made. Every time I listen to it, I somehow love it more. And one of the moments on it that has been really arresting to me is the song Make a Plan to Love Me. And I'll admit it's somewhat difficult to verbalize why this song means a lot to me. And a lot of it has to do with the context of the record. Casadega is an album... That is just, it's this album that's about accepting the inevitability and futility of the largeness of of life. And it's all about just finding yourself being caught in these like big sweeping emotional truths and as it sort of reflects that sonically it's this really big very opulent sounding album this is like the biggest a bright eyes album uh has sounded like there's a f- there's full orchestration on songs like this although make a plan to love me is a more relatively at least stripped back song and the notion here is that the, like the title implies, is that the the main character Connor or whoever it is is sort of imploring the subject of the song to to make a plan to love me and the way that's variously like recontextualized throughout the song depending on where the verse is it changes this in really subtle really interesting ways and it goes from sounding like pathetic declaration of just sort of like desperation of just wanting someone to do that but the more he elaborates on this concept the more it feels like it's in keeping with the record and trying to accept some sort of inevitable truth where it's either going to result in Connor or the main character themselves sort of being greeted with failure or their patience ultimately being rewarded and there are lines on here like um, some things you lose you don't get back so just know what you have. And there, there's just lots of tiny little moments. And this is also just such a quintessential, like when I think about what a love song sounds like, it's exactly like this. Like the strings are so big. Everything about this song is so like gentle and kind of loving. It has a couple of like rises, but it just sounds so very quintessential in how it embodies its subject material. But there are sentiments on here like life's too short to be a fool I don't owe you that do what you feel whatever is cool but I just have to ask and it's just like it's definitely a song about unrequited love but there is the genuine possibility that could turn into something more than that. And the way that the album itself progresses and just sort of carries you throughout this sort of whirlwind of gradual acceptance of inevitable failure, there's a a tragic nature to it, but it never loses sight of the potential hope in somebody. And it begins to sound more and more like something that could be genuine, something that could be real, something that could be tangible. And I just, I really love that about it. It's, it's a great song. I do feel like to fully appreciate it, you have to listen to the entire album. Uh, but in and of itself, I still think it's a beautiful moment on a beautiful record.
1: Yeah, it's funny. Like um, when I think of the two songs, there might be other one, others I'm forgetting. But I think of the two Bright Eyes songs that explicitly mention love in the title. There's this one, and there's a lover I don't have to love off of Lifted. Oh. And it's funny Boy. how the, the sensibilities and the those are like, different songs. They're, they're very different songs. Like you go from "I want a lover, I don't have to love" to "Make a plan to love me." Like this, it really shows how much Connor changed, I guess, in his perspective, or at least in how he wanted to write songs between "Lifted" and Casadega. Mm-hmm. You know, those first few Bright Eyes records, up to and including "Lifted," are tortured, um, but there's this grandiosity to them, especially on "Lifted" that. Oh yeah, bring, elevates it beyond just this, you know, sad little guy with a guitar into this like massively orchestrated masterpiece that Lifted is, and then he kind of like grows up at that point and drops a lot of the the really the real ugliness and the real sort of self loathing and leans into this much more conventional singer songwriter style. And it's funny that your first two picks are Dylan and Oberst, because. Oberst was compared a lot to Dylan around the time mm-hmm. of I'm Wide Awake, It's Morning as well. He was like this, he was seen as this kind of like millennial Dylan, who is kind of writing in this really grandiose Cas- Casadega
0: is definitely is blonde on blonde. Like the writing style is even very similar.
1: Yeah, that's a good comp. I, I like that. Yeah, beautiful song. Morgan, your second pick.
0: Uh,
2: before we get to that, I completely... Forgot to do my honorable mentions. I'll shout out uh, The Wonder Years' You in January. I'll also shout out Elliot Smith's Say Yes, which is not exactly a straightforward love song, but a, a sort of an ode to those relationships that you shouldn't be in, but you're in. Because uh, you know, it's for one reason or another. Somebody's, you know, they're still around the morning after. Yeah, um, I had to
1: I had to make a real conscious effort to cull depressing love songs. Yeah. Because there's a yeah, fuck ton the, of those.
2: Yeah. And my next pick is uh, Anne Berlin's Inevitable off of Cities, which is, like, just the corniest-ass song. And, and it's great. F- it succeeds in spades because of it. And the last one I'll shout out that I just... Ah, God, it was close. Uh, Simon and Garfunkel's Kathy song, just for the stanza. And so, you see, I have come to doubt all that I once held as true. I stand alone without beliefs. The only truth I know is you. It very nearly made the cut off of that stanza alone. And then the rest of the song around it is like, they get it. Uh, Yeah, my second pick, another easy shout especially in the in light of recent uh passing of christine mcvee uh my second pick is fleetwood Mac's songbird which actually within the framework of their respective albums kind of is like make you feel my love in the sense that they're surrounded by songs about the crumbling of a relationship and they stand as sort of wholehearted devotions to the person that they're about completely unburdened by cynicism or insincerity just surviving off of the back of their incredible and tender performances it's one of the best songs that Fleetwood Mac ever wrote
1: it's certainly the song that Christine is remembered for uh, mm-hmm. most I think yeah I'm gonna this is going to sound like it's cut out of a movie and didn't and entirely didn't happen, but I, I swear to you, it did. When Chris, the news of Christine McVee's death um, drop broke, dropped
0: <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ.
1: When, when the news of Christine hmm. McVee's death broke uh, at the end of last year, I was at work and I work in an office that is, you know, there's a few of us who are in our twenties, but a lot of the office are older people. And so immediately People were talking about this, you know, people were broken up. It it was sucked. And there was a gr- a group of us who kind of just gathered around and, you know, in the middle of our work day, which it was early in the day, and we just listened to Songbird together. And it was just this like incredibly pure moment. I was say, that's sweet. Uh, it was it felt really sweet. And and um I don't think any of us really knew what to do with ourselves at that moment. We just it just happened. We just ended up listening to Songbirds around someone's desk and god it's a perfect song it's just it's devastating it's absolutely one of the greatest love songs ever written it feels like it feels like the final statement on the matter (laughs) to be honest yeah (laughs) my second pick today is an now uh, again where i'm try, trying to make I, it's funny like i tried to make all my picks distinct in aesthetic and sound and take but they're all just indie rock songs like they're all just like the kind of shit that i would listen to that came and they all came out in the 2000s and they're all from a very kind of not that dissimilar of a world but they do sound distinct to me but yet, yet again i have another song that is not a ballad it's kind of got some ballady elements to it but they're kind of fused in the vein of this like kind of very fast-paced and intense and emotional rock song of course i'm talking about, and this is probably the the most podcore song that will be mentioned today possibly and this block parties this modern love i can remember the first time i heard God, this song yes i don't know if i've told the story before i probably will when we eventually talk about this album in a recall club um the first time i heard this album i had downloaded it from itunes and I was staying at um, the, my girlfriend at the Times house, and she lived like in a town that's sort of just five minutes out of town from the town that I lived in and went to school in. And for some reason, I, was, I had been staying at her house. And this is, I think, yeah, this was just before I even had a car. So I, I had been I had cycled there, and it was like an hour-long cycle, cycle bike ride words are hard it was an hour-long bike a ride. cycle bike and it was a it was <laughs> and, I, and you know it was a monday morning right and i had downloaded this album the night before it was the next day and i was like i want to listen to this block party album i want to i want to listen to this block party album because it's you know it's a huge indie rock album and and it feels right to listen i don't know what my exact rationale was but i listened to this album while i was on this while i was biking home at like seven in the morning to get ready for school and I decided to listen to this for the first time. And it was just this incredible experience because I was—I knew it was a rock album. I knew it was like, you know, fast paced, all that sort of stuff. I wasn't expecting it to be as flat out, you know, boom, 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 boom. I wasn't expecting what, like eating glass and helicopter hour and all that sort of stuff. So I was like fucking motoring, man. I was just clearing this one hour bike ride in like 45 minutes. And I remember because I got home before the album had even finished. But I remember hearing This Modern Love for the first time. And I was just completely on this, I I had already just taken in this energy that the first half of the album had given me, and I was just completely, I, I felt like I was flying, and especially when I was listening to this song, because this song felt instantly like it was speaking to some deeply embedded part of my teenage psyche that was in love, and that understood and felt love in all these really strong and powerful ways but also even though i was like yeah i was like 16 at the time i also had this kind of like weariness of love and heartbreak and how you navigate being in love with someone in in a world that is that moves as quickly as as the world does and where distance is often like so imposed by just the the how spread out we all are and and how our working lives and our school lives and or whatever always kind of like creates this distance that makes it you makes you kind of have to compartmentalize your relationship um, if you're living a very busy life and it just even though I was only 16 I only just started working for the first time and I was you know still too young to even have a car I Under it, felt like Kelly was really speaking to something that I I had only just started to understand. The first time I heard this modern love on that bike ride, and I can remember how this song just felt like it was lifting me up and pulling pushing me forward, and just ripping this part of me out of me that I did wasn't even conscious existed. And I remember the first time it got to that part, like at the end of the song where like the, the, you know, the vocals are just kind of lifted up and Kelly's just screaming, with this modern love breaks me. And it was, you had those backing vocals that were kind of felt like a wave that you were writing on. And then my favorite part of the entire album that like little instrumental bit where it's just that guitar riff going like hard as fuck and Matt Tong just completely gapping it on the drums. And then the song just kind of goes into its little quiet bit at the very end after that. But that little moment, that little like 10 second section where the guitar is just really hammering and the drums are really going and there's no vocals, but it's just the power of that. That is like one of the greatest little sections of music anyone's ever done. And it's the one moment on the, on on the, whole song where you don't have lyrics to give you the impression of what the love feels like. You just have the music and it feels like how it feels to be like completely obsessed with your own love and how much of a part of your personality it's become. Like it feels like this fast heartbeat. That's just kind of fucking drilling into you. Like each heartbeat feels intense and it feels like the it might be the last one you ever have because of how much this feeling is taking over you and that's what's so great about this modern love is it's so just extra and how it goes about communicating that and I think whenever we talk about this album August will probably be able to describe it even better than I can but that song to me that song is what it feels like to be in love and to be in your late teens or your early 20s where like love feels like this thing that is both an escape from how mundane and routine your life is, but also is kind of a part of that routine. And yeah, it's just, it's what it feels like to be young and in love through the prism of of what it actually feels like to exist and not like romanticized in this way that isn't real. It's realistic love in the 21st century. And it's that without, you know, trying to be profound or anything. It just is that. I love that song and that to me is like that. that is the great 21st century love song in the sense that it is a love song from the 21st century but it is a love song that is distinctly set in the 21st century and I don't think there's been a better love song that anyone has ever written since this modern love. Yeah, I mean I didn't
2: even consider it because I knew someone would so (laughs) there's that Um, yeah, the, the part where you're describing what's I mean, it's sort of a bridge, but really sort of the climax of the song. Mm. There are a few things that I can point to directly and specifically and say this changed the way that I think about this medium. Uh, But, you know, I I heard that song my sophomore year of high school, and it felt like, I mean, it's just one of those things where you're like, oh, uh, something I'm feeling actually is universal. Mm. And people, this is, this is it. They got it. They captured it.
1: Right now to our third picks, Jake, what is your third and favorite, I suppose, pick?
0: My favorite pick is the pick that has probably been in my life for the least amount of time, because I only just heard this album on new year's Eve. This was the album I picked to listen to right at the end of my shift when I was working uh, and it furthers the big thiefification, big thief pillification of this podcast um, because it comes from one Miss Adrian Lanker, the front woman to Big Thief, her solo record, Abyss Kiss, and it is the title track. It's really strange just because this is a really simple song. There's mm-hmm. nothing that's particularly complex about it. There's, I mean, it starts with. And like like most of the songs on this album do, with an absolutely timeless, gorgeous acoustic guitar melody like it's that are so, just all throughout this record.
1: It's so Nick Drake, like Pink Moon, Nick Drake. Oh. It, it reminds me so much of that every time I listen to this song.
0: Uh, this whole album is like, it, to me, the more I listen to it, the more it does really feel like Pink Moon, not in just like aesthetics, which it certainly is, but in, like, in terms of my relationship to it, I just, I keep coming back to this album and listening to it, and I just love it more every single time. And it's difficult just because there's not, like, it's not like Adrian is this really wordy writer, but, like, in terms of what this record is talking about and on a song-by-song basis, it's, like, there's a lot of density to the prose here. So, like, I don't even think I really registered that this was kind of a love song if you want to be technical about it the first time i heard it it's a lot of it has to do with it's kind of the same thing as shelter from the storm because it's that but it's channeled in this more ephemeral way the the first verse here and again this, this is a pretty short song especially like lyrically but the the first verse here just conveys this sense of of comfort in your partner the try and get some rest i'll do the rest think to what the roses find with the arms of passion this is how we fashion war's worried mind in the hour i loved you like a dream it was true in the base of my pine there's all these references to nature and like a lot of adrian's music and big thief big thief's music is about that to some degree Mm -hmm. and it's about sort of finding singularity and finding personage amidst that and the the chorus is really like it's very quick it's just wilderness vast abyss will we ever kiss a bit of an unrequited notion in there of just like will we ever but there's the notion of being within a vast abyss and it's only you and this other person and it's just the two of you and that's a lot of what this album does is that when i listen to this it feels like I'm listening to an album that's about the only two people that have ever existed on Earth. Like, the, the rest of the world just doesn't even feel real because of the atmosphere on this record. And there is, I like I said, a comfort, but also a, a reassurance despite adversity, despite the tempestuousness of life. The, the outro has this lyric, the love is on her shoulder, love is on the boulder. In the eyes, in the eyes, love never leaves, love never leaves. It's like As the song progresses to this very ending part here, she's equating love, this intimate, personal, connective thing that she has with somebody else to be this vast sort of nature-like force Mm -hmm. that she was equating earlier on as being the thing that surrounded them. But now, as the course of the song has sort of run its way, now it is everything that's around them. And that sort of, again, that universality is just so gorgeous. And a lot of what makes this song special is, again, in Adrian's performance, in what this song actually sounds like in a way that I can't possibly convey. Uh, mm-hmm. if, they, if, they, if you learn anything from this, you just need to fucking listen to this album my god it's so good uh riley is the only reason i even know this album exists in the first place and i was just like oh fuck a modern successor to pink moon i gotta give that a shot and it's 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 as good i agree it's a masterpiece but this is the song on here i feel like that has given me the most amount of comfort there's a lot of songs on here that have to deal With really, like, this is probably the simplest song on the whole album. There's a lot more complicated sentiments. Like on the opener, there's this song where she uses the dual meaning of the word terminal to mean like, you know, in transit, but also terminal meaning like, you know, towards death, where she manages to explore this vast expanse and her relationship to someone else in it. And here, it's sort of like the opposite of that, the inverse, the sort of yin to its yang. And I I just, I find a lot of very ephemeral, quiet beauty in it that just puts my soul at ease.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a song about love as a natural force, but also like personifying the actual environment and the nature and trees and leaves and actual things in the world around you as embodiments of your love. And, you know, the, the the cheap reading would be to say that it's about being in love with nature, but it, it, nature is kind of like this force that is both what love is, but also like what your love represents as well in a weird way, like wilderness, vast abyss, will we ever kiss? That's all you need to know about this song. It is about the, both the distance from and the oneness with the world around you and How you kind of come to understand your emotions and your feelings and your love through your relationship with this the place you live in, like the way that she um, she's you know she talks about the base of her pine, like obviously evoking base of my spine, but choosing to just to use the word pine instead to evoke a tree is a great way where she communicates that. I think Adrian gets a little bit of flack sometimes for how kind of hippy dippy some of her lyrics can be in terms of like talking about nature and personifying nature and wanting to like, and being in love with, you know, something that isn't tangible or whatever, or or her love feeling like that. But I get what she's communicating. I feel like I understand it. I understand how love is for her, this thing that is so all consuming and such a huge part of who she is and her experience, but also this thing that is, as foreign to her as, you know, the interior life of a tree or a plant or, or whatever. Um, and and... It, makes, it makes a great pairing with Simulation Swarm on Dragon New War Mountain,
0: I believe in you. Yeah. Well, Adrienne is- Which written... is
1: a song that makes me cry. Adrian has written a lot of songs about love and I, when I saw you picked one, I immediately thought, okay, cool. I don't have to think about big C for Adrian because we've got them covered. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I could have very easily picked any number of songs that she's written. Um, Mary from capacity stands out as a really good one as well. But yeah, this is a beautiful song and I, I'm I'm so pleased that it strikes you in the same way that it strikes me as well. Uh, It's, It's something else. All right, Morgan, what is your final pick today for favorite love songs?
2: I think uh, Brian Fallon of the Gaslight Anthem is, I mean, for one, and to state the obvious, really, he's a master of earnestness and sincerity, which is a, a difficult thing to do. I think it's like underrated how difficult that is to do. Uh, but yeah, my pick for this, and there were were honestly a few, uh, both between Gaslight Anthem and his solo career that I thought about going with, but I ultimately settled on May from the twenty twelve album Handwritten. I'll just start with the sound of the song,
0: which those fucking guitar tones, it, man.
2: Yeah, I. And the, 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 the synth that, or not synth, but like the, the, the keyboard ambient sound that runs behind it. um, I mean, it, this is a four chord song and it makes it sound like the first four chord song that was ever written. It's just so completely and entirely sold conceptually. It's you don't doubt any of it for a second it just sounds so ridiculously romantic in ways that I can't even really describe. It just sounds that way.
1: I was just going to say it touches on one of my favorite th- themes for any love song to evoke, which is the idea of driving with someone.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. I always think of the, uh, it's the, the verse before the chorus and then the chorus itself But in particular, his delivery of them on the last two times that it's sung. The verse is, uh, while this, and still the city pumps its aching heart for one more drop of blood. We work our fingers down to dust while we wait for kingdom come with the radio on. And then the chorus is just, I want to see you tonight. Would you come for a drive? You can lean into me if you ain't. Oh, you ain't been in love for a while. It's, it is similar to this modern love for me. I, I might like this song more. It's hard to say, especially in the pacing of the album. It comes at a point where you're like, everything makes sense again. You know, you will persevere through just about anything. That life throws at you uh, just so long as you have this person beside you and you have the radio on and it's like me saying that that sounds almost trite and not really anything worth mining just because it's been done so many times and yeah it, may is not the kind of song that the first time you hear it you're to me like oh this is this is revolutionary this changes the way I think about love songs and rock music, uh, kind of like this modern love did for me, but the longer time goes on and the longer I have this one in my life is the more true it becomes. There's a sort of resignation to it. that uh, while we wait for kingdom come with the radio on, you know, we don't, we don't have, much in life really so you just hold on to what you can and make it mean something the way that he performs it the way the band performs it it's just so it's bigger than you could even comprehend the way it sounds listening to it and it's just yeah i don't i don't i don't really have the words for it
1: it's got every heartland rock trope that you could imagine all in one song. And it's so quintessential in the way that it uses those tropes. It feels like, you know, it's the same song that Bruce Springsteen wrote in 1978. And it's, it's, but it's, it feels as essential now as those songs did. Yeah. The first time you heard them, as I'm sure they did the people who were there when it came out as well. Um, And I love, I love, I have a real thing. So two things I love happen to love. One is a song that uses the motif of going for a drive with someone to talk about love or to talk about connection. That's I'm always there for that. And the other thing I love, another thing I love the song does is end mid sentence. I love songs that do this as well. That let you complete the image, uh, when the song is over and also of course the way that it refrains that the way that changes the refrain from with the radio on to but since the radio is on at the end and you put the pieces together of of the connection these two people have and obviously that this is not the end that there's going to be something that continues on after the song is over that you don't even necessarily need to be privy to as a listener you just you fill it in with your imagination and with your dreams as well and this is the thing about heartland rock is that the whole point of it of heartland rock in a lot of ways is to put into song your romantic dreams or your romanticized dreams of how things could be or of the perfect love or the perfect escape or whatever and this song gives you that romanticized vision and then at the very last moment lets you fill in the gaps with your personal particular version of that with whoever that person is or whatever that ideal is. I love that. It's beautiful. It's 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 as perfect of a Heartland rock song as there could ever be. And it makes a really compelling argument for why these tropes, though they have been, you know, a million songs have been written now with these exact tropes, it makes it a great argument for why that is and why that doesn't even necessarily need to change. Because they're enduring and they, they get to the heart of what it's all about, you know? And that's what's great about that song. My final pick, my absolute favorite love song. Uh, and it's not as, you know, it doesn't feel, I suppose, as timeless or like a classic love song as my other two picks, or at least as this Modern Love, which I said is like the definitive 21st century love song. But this last pick is a little bit more personal to me. Uh, it's a song that feels, it's just my favorite love song. is a song that feels so intimate and like it, it, it perfectly captures the innocence and the embrace of innocence that love can give you and being in love can give you but also like just the sense of intimacy and like when you're in love with someone how your love for them and their love for you can feel like the only love in the world that's actually real and that counts and that matters but it's also if you read the lyrics straightforwardly, it's also kind of a song about being on your way to falling in love with someone, or maybe you are already in love with that person, but you haven't said those words to each other yet. And you're in that kind of nascent stage of realizing it together, which is just this, which is actually a stage of falling in love that very few love songs are about that awkward stage where you both are in love with each other but you don't have the courage to tell each other yet the song is our way to fall by yola Tingo from their album and then nothing turned itself inside out obviously it's my favorite song on that album um it's one of my favorite yola Tingo songs it's such a quintessential yola Tingo song in that it sounds incredibly lonely uh there's this like organ that's kind of that this album's full of this these organ tones, as well. There's just like this gently kind of reverberating organ that just hangs in the background and sounds like the loneliest thing you've ever heard. But there's this counterpoint between the organ and these like really kind of gentle, like synthy keyboard sounds that kind of are pushed forward by the really soft and beautiful drumming of Georgia Hubley. Like she has, I think she's using brushes on her cymbals. It just sounds, sounds really, like it, yeah, it sounds just really kind of like soft and warm and homely and it almost sounds like because of course if you know Yolatingo, tingo you know that frontman and guitarist ira kaplan and drummer georgia hubley are husband and wife and have been a couple as long as Yolatingo tingo have existed which is coming up on 40 years now so whenever they write a love song it just has this additional layer of like yeah these these this song is about these two people in this band And that love is ironclad, as ironclad as any love has ever been. And it's not the first love song that Ira has ostensibly written about Georgia. It wouldn't be the last love song either. But it is maybe the most eternal to me. Like that like I was talking about, that that particular focus of this on that nascent stage of love. Like there's almost these autobiographical elements. I don't know if they're true to life or not, but Ira is like, almost like speak singing these little encounters or these moments in their relationship early on, um, or, you know, it's kind of disconnected from time. You don't really get a sense of time that much. And he's whispering them in this kind of way. Like he's, he's talking to her specifically just to her. Like they're in bed late at night together, or they're sitting together somewhere and he's reminiscing, you know, and again, they've been together for probably, I think, by the time the song's written, at least 15 years, I think. Um, so they know each other and their love has gone through a lot. And and it's, I feel probably what feels like, already feels like a lifetime. And to be writing a song about the early days of that, at that point feels really poignant. And in the way he whispers and then these kind of gentle organ chords and synthesizer or key sounds that he's playing with James McNew's, always dependable bass work providing a very subtle backdrop it almost feels like through the music ira and georgia are like talking to each other like georgia's gentle splashing um, drum work is like a response to or is an affirmation of the things that ira is saying and then it just comes back to that refrain of we'll try and try and try to make it ours because we're on our way to fall in love like it's just the most it's the sweetest thing I think you've ever heard. Like it's such a sweet song and there's just like something about those organs that make me well up, but also make me really nostalgic as well. It just has that late night sort of 3am with one other person. And you're just kind of sitting there or you're walking around together or you're doing something. And it's just, there's, there's an energy between the two of you that doesn't need to be acknowledged. And you could just be there in that moment forever. And That feels like, you know, I I imagine that moment for them. And I imagine that the moment they realized they were in love with each other was a moment very much like that, you know, late at night, just hanging out, you know, doing stuff, nothing actually romantic or, or, you know, anything like that. It's just this mundane moment that feels, and that's what's so beautiful about all the little mundane biographical details in the song as well, of things that may or may not have happened to him, that things that Ira remembers, he's recalling for them and yeah, it's just beautiful. It's, it's, it, it makes me feel wistful, I guess. I don't know. It, it's, it, it's just this perfect little love song. Um, and, you know, for all of the grandiosity of the other songs that I've shouted out and a lot of the songs we've talked about that make love into this huge Titanic, all-consuming thing, there's something that feels particularly novel and kind of appealing to me about having a love song like this where the stakes are just super low and it's just this song about how neat it is to be in love like yeah we've got loads of songs about I think how it's like me yeah there's loads of songs about how love is this kind of all-conquering force that feels like you're dying and being born at the same time and then there's just this song that's about like hey you're cool <laughs> and i love that that more love song i think you're like swell i think you're neat and I like being around here. Hello, Sue. Do you like bread? <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah, bread. Exactly. It's a fucking bread ass love song in the sense that you're like the my favorite sandwich. <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: Yeah. And there's something to be said for love songs like that that really lower the stakes. And and YOLA Tingo are Maybe they are just the best band ever, in my opinion. I don't know. I feel like I've I've danced around saying that my entire life. We'll talk about it next week when we review their new album, but this is a great song, and I think it's the best, in my opinion.
2: Yeah, I have to say, um, we reviewed. I can hear the heart beating is one. However long ago that was, now, um, feels like it was roughly two centuries, but I am maybe off on that. It's certainly an album that I owe a re-listen in time. Because I, I definitely enjoyed it, but I'm not sure that I understood the extent of it. And I think, I think the best way I can put my how I understand this song is that I think it's the first song I've heard from them that really makes me feel like I, I get Yola Tango now. I get the The fervor for them, because I mean, I just listen to the song. It's just like, oh, that's that is an instant classic.
1: Yeah, it was actually very close for me because I they have a lot of love songs that I love, and the my second favorite one is, is Stockholm Syndrome off of I Can Hear the Heart, which isn't even sung by Ira or Georgia. That's a James song, but I love that too. Uh, Autumn Sweater as well, which is right after it on oh, no, I Can Hear the Heart is like classic. But to me, Our Way to Fall is the one, because like I said, it's just because the stakes are so low. It's not a song that overwhelms you in any way. It's a song that just feels comforting. And there should be more like that. Oh, and if August were here, I know he'd be shouting out another classic, hood classic love song from Yola Tingo, which is nowhere near off of painful. Like that People, song, yeah. that song is just, it makes you feel like what it must have felt like to be in love in the 50s. And it's maybe my favorite song that George has ever sung lead on. Hard to say though. Anyway, Yola Tingo, great at writing love songs because maybe they understand love better than anyone else. Well, those are our picks for our favorite love songs this valentine's day let us know what you thought in the comments below as well let us know what your favorite love songs are in general too. want to hear your picks i'll make sure to put a playlist together of all the songs we talked about today that you should be able to access in the description below if you want to check them out if you want to give them a listen let us know what you think if you haven't already heard them if you enjoy this video, please consider giving it a like and subscribing to the channel. If you have not done those already. They help us out a great deal. If you want to go above and beyond and support us even further, you can hit the join button for just $1 a month. You can support the channel directly, become a member of the Jams and T family, get your name in the title call of every video on this channel. Plus, if you want to recommend us some music to listen to, your recommendation will go to the top of the pile. As always though, folks, until next time, rock over London, rock on Chicago, McDonald's, I'm loving it.